All right. want to say thank you, Gregory, first of all, for your time and everybody else for taking the time to listen in. Um, great experiment we're about to embark on here. Two good friends to talk a little bit about what's happening uh, in this country, in the world, in society, in culture, in politics. And um, I think you can find this enjoyable, at least Gregory and I do. And we decided we want to share some of the conversations that we've been having over the past few months with the rest of you all. So Gregory, why don't you do a little bit and explain about what Americanata is and what you're bringing to the table here. <laughs> what I'm bringing to the table. Uh, I first heard the term Americanata uh, in Venice, Italy. I was uh, flown by the State Department to be on a panel. It was, a, it was quite a good boondoggle flown uh, to be in a panel about what Americanness was many years ago. And I was at a dinner afterwards with some fancy people and an Italian woman, a very kind of snooty Italian woman, uh, suddenly started talking about Las Vegas and how much she hated it. And she said, it, it's so Americanata. And I said, wow, I just tuned in. What, what does that mean? Does it, and and uh, this poor man next to her said, no, 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 leave the American alone. You know, don't, don't pick on him. He's like, I said, no, no, tell me what Americanata is. She said, well, it's, it's anything that's so kitschy, little over the top, so American. So I just thought in talking uh, with you sometimes, it was like, we're talking about being an American and sometimes it's over the top. And I thought we both put our heads together and we thought it was a perfect name that's uh, sort of taking, talking about America in, in a way that's sort of irreverent and uh, taking it seriously with some sort of affection and some sort of irreverence as well. Well, and we've talked a little bit about kind of the cartoonish nature of these times too, and how the yeah. extreme, the extreme certainly set the table for our political discourse. And I know we're going to be getting into a lot of that, but we're also looking at, I think, an examination and a discussion of what's happening with the, the emerging racial consciousness. And while we're not talking about um, anything cartoonish or even necessarily humorous there, what we are talking about is a really different way that America is looking at and examining ourselves through the lens of identity politics, mm -hmm. um, social cohesion or lack thereof, the history of what that means, mm -hmm. and what, what comes next. I think a lot of people um, are kind of more worried about what comes next month here in 2020 or what's going to come next week. Right. Right. But I think that a lot of the ideas that you have been writing on for many years, uh, the political world that I've been engaged in for many years, I think is looking and yearning for an answer to say, out of all of this chaos, out of all of this deconstruction, out of all of this um, chaos, something must be emerging. There has to be something hopeful. There has to be something that is um, that we are transforming into, that we are becoming. And we we have we have very similar opinions on some of this, and we have some very divergent opinions on this. But we are very. Um, studious about it. I think we are very aware of it. We talk about it a lot. And my own background, of course, I come from um, a political background. I'm a practitioner. I'm a political consultant. My area of expertise has always been in Latino politics, but I'm a Republican, which makes me a, a very strange and peculiar creature. But it's also allowed me to get some really keen insight in running Republican campaign for, for almost three decades now to understand what is happening with the Republican Party what has gone horribly wrong in so many ways? What are some of the things that are different from when you and I first met in the mid 1990s, right. while we were talking about racial transformation and what was happening in the 1990s in California 
um, that was challenging, I think, some of our, our best ideas at the time on why things work and why things don't. And there's a lot of things when I think back to those conversations on why you were right and, there's a, and why I was wrong and, and vice versa. And I think it's good to, to, to know that we've been having this same Americanata conversation for 30 years and to see where we were right and where we were wrong. First of all, that was an unbelievably good uh, roundup of our lives. I think we can die now. But um, the, the one thing I can say, one, the cartoonish thing, I'd like to go back to that. I guess it's brilliant that the, the, the Mount Rushmore event was sort of cartoonish in so many ways. But you mentioned where your background politically in the Republican Party. My background, if it's a background at all, was I, I studied religious philosophy. And my interest was always the underlying networks and sits, systems of meaning and networks of affection that allow people, that keep people from killing themselves and, and killing others. Like my interest is in what sustains people, families, cultures, nations. And, you know, I, I got into doing Latino politics in the 90s and I ran like hell out of it because in essence, uh, because people, people like you were coming in who knew what they were talking about and I didn't, one. Uh, two, my interest was never the politics, but the, but the underlying, uh, uh, needs, desires, fantasies that led people to behave politically certain ways or the other. Um, you've become a, an unbelievable expert on that. And my vision has gone more under the, not quite opinion, not quite identity. My interest is in, is in the assumptions that people have about the nature of reality and the kind of reality they think they want. So I think when we talk, we hit at different levels and we sort of, sort of in, our, in, our, in our discussions, we sort of enhance each other's point of view at any given point. So I think that's why you just suddenly say, shit, we should record these. So, so we're coming at it at different angles and different levels and sort of ending up at the same place. But uh, if I could, what was cartoonish about Mount Rushmore? Because it's, it's a remarkable place to start. Well, I mean, look, we're at a we're at a moment in time, and I guess it's it's appropriate um, with all the qualifiers. You you counsel me regularly that politics is very rarely a driver of culture, and I think that that's very very true. Um, but we're at this moment of intersection between politics and race and culture, and and um, I think you know we're we're just a couple of days off of this speech that the United States president gave in celebration of the 244th anniversary of our birthday as a country to define what the American experiment means and, and shouldn't be and should be. And I think there's a jarring realization that the vision for America as Donald Trump sees it is not only, I think, what, what many of us have believed has been a continual progression for um, a more expansive vision of the ideals, but this is genuinely, crassly, boldly, clearly a regression to a, essentially a cartoonish, what has become a cartoonish view of what um, Americans are. It's, a, it's Americanata, right? It's, a, it's kitschy. Literally it's, 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 a statue garden. Literally a statue yeah. I mean, you see, the vision doesn't even apply to that speech. It's literally let let's save statues. It, it was it was re, it was remarkable, but but there was also this low production value. I mean, I felt bad for Mary Hart. I mean, 
from, from, from the top to finish, there was something, I felt like I was watching, do you remember Wally George from cable TV? Yes, one of, I was a fan favorite of Wally George. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was ridiculous. It was, like, it was like I expected Alec Baldwin to come out and relieve whatever his name is. But there was something unbelievably unreal, bad quality. Uh, it, was, it was literally for an audience of people who didn't expect anything more. Uh, and it did come across as, as, uh, as cartoonish. And, but, but in a more serious sense, you understand better than anyone, the strategy behind the cartoon. Uh, what was yeah, the point of that, of that speech? Well, that, and that's, I think, one of, that's, that's one of the most dismaying things is, look, I mean, the president has recognized that, that we're going to hit the, the if, he, if he is to be successful, Donald Trump, in being reelected in a few short months, he's going to have to he's going to have to once and for all enmesh the ideas that Americanness and whiteness are one in the same and that it is under threat, it is under attack. The very notion that America as a white Christian nation, that basically the words he, he put out, you know, as a Judeo-Christian nation, right? This is, this is no longer a descriptor in a changing America. It's, it's essentially a call to arms. And what it is, is he's got to rally enough, enough white voters in enough states to what we would call overperform the voter model. I mean, he has to bring people that have been disengaged from the system that are so motivated by the Confederate flag and the removal of Robert E. Lee's statues and so disdainful of NASCAR denying them their heritage that they are, that is the reason they are going to vote. Are, are, are yeah. they looking for people, for, for whites who hadn't voted in 2016? Are they, are they trying to find? Yes, yes. He's, and here's why. I think I, there, there's, one of two, there's one of two possible, possible strategies. One is they're somehow going to recapture suburban moms with a Confederate strategy, which those voters have been leaving him since November of 2016. They, they completely abandoned him in 2018, and all the polling shows that they're leaving. There is a direct correlation between how educated you are and your disdain for Donald Trump and Trumpism. That's, there's a direct correlation. So it's highly unlikely that they believe that they're going to get those voters back. What they are in all likelihood trying to do is get those voters that did not think Donald Trump was racist enough in 2016. That it wasn't clear enough. The dog whistle was still a little too faint. What right. they needed was a bullhorn saying, if you didn't understand what I meant at Charlottesville by saying there are nice people on both sides or very fine people on both sides, if you don't know what I mean when I say there's bad hombres that are going to break into your uh, you know, bedroom window because we're not establishing law and order, or if you believe that there's a place in China called Kung Flu, then you know, if, if you don't understand that clearly enough, let me make it clearer. And, and, and that's who he's trying to get to the polls because that, that is the last resort and it's all wrapped in the American flag. And, and the, the, the more crass it becomes, the more simple the language, the more obvious it is. It's, it, it's the beauty, if you will, of the moment that that we've had academics for 30, 40 years talking about the intricacies of white supremacy and how you can find it under this rock and under this system. It is, 
right in front of you now. It is entirely apparent that how it works is that whiteness was, in, in its very sense, an amalgamation of European origin people who define themselves in contradistinction first to blackness. And then as those European origin Americans went westward, they didn't define themselves in battle against Native Americans. And then in the 1840s uh, against Mexicans. So whiteness performed better, if you will, in the way he's doing it when there's a ready antagonist. So when he talks, when the gov governor of Arizona talks about, the, blames the Mexicans for bringing COVID-19, uh, when, when, when the president of the United States talks about Kung flu, it is rallying not only voters, but as you said, it's rallying whiteness. That if whiteness then is, again, an amalgam of European origin people who didn't have any, uh, necessarily anything in common in their home countries, if, and, and they came together as a people, if you will, as a race, if you will, only in contradistinction to Blacks, uh, Native Americans, and Mexicans, and, and then later Chinese and others, then whiteness needs to be created and enforced through fear, that you're always having to, to bring whites together, you have to make them afraid of non-whites. And this thing, you're, there's a moment you're talking about politically, is literally a, an object lesson in the history of whiteness in America. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. It's, it's making November 2020 a referendum on whiteness and Americanness, at least in the vision that he views it as, is are they one in the same? Because if you are not white, you are suspect. And that's really the definition of Trumpism. And I would argue as, as um, somebody who has spent his entire career in the conservative movement and in Republican politics, there is a very clear distinction in my mind between traditional classical conservatism and populist nationalism. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm talking like an, an academic speak to myself when I say this because the average person conflates a conservatism with yeah. republicanism because that's the way that it has been. But this dramatic change, and there's, I'm not going to suggest there's not some overlap, and we should talk about that on another episode, another, another episode of this podcast, but the Republican Party has devolved under Trump into a white nationalist identity politics party, to your point. It right. has become the home of what was once ubiquitous in this country. Is we just said that that was normal. And you would hear very often the, the common vernacular was, why don't we just come here and work as a melting pot and it would be great if everybody just came and was more American. I don't see color. I don't see, why are we hyphenated Americans? What that really, in my mind, and correct me if, if you disagree or, or, or you know, to, in my mind, that is saying we need to be more white. You have the opportunity, unless you're black, there are different degrees of whiteness that you can attain. That was the promise of America. There, right? there, there's two different things. Generationally, go ahead. Generationally, you could attain a certain level of whiteness, meaning you could be American. You are becoming more American. You can grow your whiteness. There, you can there, grow there, some there, level of privilege. There are opportunities for whiteness among European origin people, particularly. But, but the way I see it is sort of, so there's two things. One is there's a cartoonish, obvious sort of white supremacy of, of, of Donald Trump. And then there's the sort of the implicit white supremacy of a lot of the systems that we live under in this country and a lot of the, a lot of the assumptions people live by. So whiteness, if whiteness is normality, then one, and, and it's really, it's been a Faustian bargain for, for ethnics. 
uh, blacks have been barely allowed to play in the game, which is then the game is you lose your ancestral ties, you lose, you lose any sense of meaning uh, and network that your grandparents or grandparents once enjoyed, and then you may become that individual, that white person that is somehow transcendent. Ethnicity was seen as something primal, something uh, uh, primordial, something savage, if you will. And so, but you, you could, an ethnic American could strive for whiteness, but in a sense, they only got beyond the, they never really got beyond the lobby. They got the, to the answer. Look at Barack Obama, right? So, so he's, a, he's a half African uh, man uh, who became president and, and, and automatically his, 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 his uh, citizenship was questioned. So whiteness is simply, the, the, the white supremacy is the implicit sense that whites are not only superior, they are the norm. So I don't, I don't think we've ever really gotten rid of that system. Uh, and if the beauty of the moment, again, using that word lightly, uh, or perhaps jokingly, is that it's now becoming totally obvious, he's a cartoon version of what people on the left and right do every day in their assumptions of what a real American is. So there may be some benefit to this cartoonish moment to analyze a lot of the, I mean, white supremacy is something you and I talk, to, talk about all the time. These things we've got to navigate. We've got to navigate and justify our presence in certain spaces all our lives. And we're, we, you know, we're, we're accomplished Mexican-Americans. And we're, it's, 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 it's something, it's like you navigate it every freaking day of your life. And there's something just so obvious about the moment. And so I want to make a distinction between the political ploy he's playing, whiteness as political strategy, and then whiteness as sort of an implicit cultural assumption in American life. But it's fair to say that they're all kind of being questioned, I think, in a way that they never have been before at this moment in time. Yeah. And, and like yeah. you said, there is a beauty of the clarity in the moment, even though it's not, Absolutely. You know, even, though, even though that clarity is, is cartoonish, even though it is- Absolutely. It, and the clarity sometimes comes in the lesser, if you will. Obviously, we're all find the, 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 the killing of, of a man uh, in the hands of a policeman abhorrent in every way. But then you see the operation of the same sort of whiteness and the white supremacy in the incident of the, of the, of the, of the African-American bird watcher in Central Park. The, the, the essence that race is sometimes a tool. Race and their fear of the savage non-white is sometimes just a tool. This, this, this woman, I don't need to name her name and I feel bad for her somehow, uh, in that her life has been utterly destroyed, uh, but that seems to be how America functions these days. Um, but the way she used that race, we all saw it, like you said, we're becoming aware of the assumptions and the mechanisms of white supremacy at this moment, more aware than I think we've ever been in American history. And it's not being done in academic, you know, gobbledygook that very few of us understand. That's the beauty. Academics have been onto this for a long time, but I don't think they could ever have imagined it being explained on CNN. One of the fascinating things about that is how the changing um, political and public opinion sentiments are of whites in America. Um, when you look at what is happening with the COVID situation, the pandemic, when you look at the economy in shambles, when you look at uh, the racial strife that's kind of consumed the nation. It, it is it is the um, racial, the handling of the racial strife that is among the top 
indicators of change in America that is, I think, unique, politically speaking, at least at this time, where the president has resorted to the law and order tactics of 1968 to kind of galvanize this base and racially stratify the base. And that's not working. And it's not working because what has changed is the politics and the racial sentiment of whites in America. There's clearly a, a challenge, and you and I have talked about this at length, I'm sure we will going forward, about the racial transformation that as Latinos specifically are beginning to replace a lot of white Americans and this threat that that... Be careful with that word replacement, Madrid. Yeah, I know. Replacement is a word that scares people, but that the, the racial transformation that is what, what I think is fairly characterized as the Latinization of, of the United States, what has also happened is there are whites, and again, generally college-educated whites who are upwardly mobile economically and more optimistic about their future than those that are non-college-educated, are changing the way that they view and understand this white supremacy, which is a, which is a term I, I frankly, I, I just don't like because and it, it might be a generation Gen X thing or an older person's thing, but that that term kind of conjures up burning crosses and white hoods. To and, me, and that's not, to that, me, why, why, don't, why don't you explain a little bit about what white, white supremacy white means so that we can use it without being as charged as it may, may white, be or, or may not be. White supremacy is a structure, uh, is, is a structure of, of, of whites being the normal, being the, the norm at the top of it. Uh, and, and, and there's nothing, it's a system. Racism is the ideology that justifies the system. So for instance, so I'm reading this extraordinary book on the expulsions of Native Americans from the Southeast of the United States. And, 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 and in essence, what the, the implicit notion throughout as this law is passed in 1830 and signed by Andrew Jackson is that whites had a right to other people's land. Is that they were not white. They didn't, they could not abide that, they, they could not enjoy the rights that whites could enjoy. That is white supremacy. That is, the system was made for whites to enjoy. There's an extraordinary letter, uh, and I, I, it's like, I believe his name is Levi Colbert, a, a, a Choctaw leader that he wrote a 14-page letter to Andrew Jackson, uh, in which he says, are these, these rights you're talking about, is, is this liberty your, your, your nation that makes your nation distinct, are they only for yourselves? Uh, and it's, it's really quite poignant as I, as I read this book. And, and yes, they were. The individual rights and the belief in liberty were for white people. The, natural, the Naturalization Act of 1790 said free white persons, only free white persons could become citizens. So white supremacy, was, is, it's, 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 it's not about the cross burns. It's about the nature of the system. And so as then, to give you an example, where the, race, the racism then is the ideology that then justifies the, 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 the functioning of white supremacy. So, so as whites needed to feel good about themselves, because this was a chosen nation, they wanted to be good people, they wanted to be an innocent nation, as whites continued depredations against blacks, Native Americans, and Mexicans, whites had to up the ante and essentially blame the victim for what they did. And they blamed them through racism. And the racism was these people aren't quite human, one. These people don't have the capacity to enjoy individual rights as we do. The racism justified the supremacy. 
So one is systematic, one is ideological, if you will, just to break it down a little bit. But, but, but again, but I, but I wanna go back to your changes and what's, what you think racial, so what do you find in the polls right now about how white attitudes might be changing toward race? Uh, what have you seen in the last six months in the polling? Well, at basic level, what we are finding is that there's a very significant shift, and I, by significant, I mean, you know, 20, 30 point shifts behind um, the, the sense and sentiment of the average voter and even Republican voters who believe that uh, Donald Trump is not handling the racial conditions of this country well. And by a very wide margin, they believe that Joe Biden is better capable, better equipped to do that. Um, and I'm talking, like I said, these are not two or three points or seven to 12 point shifts. These are 30 point shifts. I mean, these are massive. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, when we, there was a time in the not too distant future, and I'm talking pre-Trump era, five, six, eight years ago, where there was kind of this sentiment amongst white voters that, okay, yeah, we, we've done a lot of bad things in the past. And yeah, we're increasingly aware that police brutality is an issue. And, but you know, are we really, is America, you know, is it, is it systemic racism? Uh, probably, probably not. Do I believe that I, as a white male, am as, a, as oppressed as a black male? Yeah, I think we're getting to that point. I think we're getting to the point where, um, you know, the attack on white males has gone too far. And I'll talk about it in terms of being politically correct or not, but there's this backlash that was developing. With Trump and the clarity on full display, that has collapsed. I'm not gonna say it doesn't exist, but the clarity is so stark, as you pointed out. The moment is so clear, and the, the fact that so many people are demanding that a side be taken, ironically, when it's Donald Trump who has made a whole political career, at least in the past three to four years, as forcing people to take sides on these cultural issues, which are really racial issues, by the way, mm -hmm. um, what, what is happening is whites are moving away from that sentiment. They are moving away and separating their racial identity from these cartoonish notions of Trump's America. And that, that's gonna have, Go ahead. That's gonna have profound impacts on not just the 2020 election, but it's gonna have profound impacts on the way our politics are practiced through the course of at least the next decade. This is, this is one of the defining elements of what America during the 2020s will be. It is going to be a reckoning of what this history, this heritage of this country um, has truly been and how it has affected non-white people. And I, I think that's because of a confluence of a number of, of, of events, but one of them, and again, reflected in the polling we're talking about, is this, I think there's just a general fatigue amongst white, upwardly mobile, um, both progressive and conservative Americans in both parties who are saying enough. It's just, it's too clear. What right. is happening is too clear to further, to deny it, whether it's conscious or subconscious, it is so evidently clear, it's time for America to resolve this issue once and for all. Now, will we? I don't know, but I do believe that at least for this moment, however brief, and hopefully it will be longer, there is a, a finally a fatigue where the, this burden, um, this silent burden is being thrown off and saying, we're not gonna carry this nonsense anymore. 
We're going to address the elephant in the room. Our crazy uncle that comes over for Thanksgiving can no longer talk like this, be like this, act like this. Right. We're going to confront this and deal with this issue once and for all. Well, I think this is why I like working with you, Mike, because I, ultimately you're an optimist and you're, you're more optimistic than I am. I, I don't, I don't know if the reckoning is going to go on for a long time. Uh, I don't know what it's going to come up with. I don't know if people, I don't know how many of the people discussing are after justice or how much uh, this is about some sort of from performance of revenge or, or to, and I, I, you mentioned um, the crazy uncle, uh, the, the, you know, obviously, yes, you know, we have lots of, you know, the, the racism around, but that's obvious. But I think, when we're talking about, if we're talking about that, that, that Thanksgiving dinner, it's really like we have to talk about the, the table. We have to talk about the stability of the table, the shape of the table, who's at the table. And, and one of the things that's really been disconcerting with me, to me for years, is the extent to which we talk about racism in this country as if it were an emotional thing or an insult, or if it was sort of overt, it was always sort of overt and emotional rather than uh, the notions of white supremacy, which are really about interests, which are really about whites as an interest group, if you will, that people who come together to forward a certain amount of it, to forward their own interest, to gain advantage within a system in which is the racial hierarchy. So, so, so I, I think I, I, I'm, I'm wondering, what, what, maybe I can ask you a question or you can take it any way you want, but I'm wondering, why you? Why? What is? Why are you hopeful? Tell me so I can so I can grab onto it. Well, look, I've never been accused of being an optimist. <laughs> I think I'm probably more of a contrarian than an optimist. And times are so bad right now that I'm probably saying, well, I can't. It can't be that bad because I've got to take the opposite view. Right. So You've got to survive. I do believe this. I think that. Um, I think that regardless, I think that human beings are remarkably adaptable and we figure things out on the way. Sometimes it takes centuries, sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes months. Uh, we're in a centuries long struggle here as a country and I, I don't know whether we are in our adolescence with this discussion or if we are you know, in kind of the later stages of it. I, I, I think that we are, however, I think we are at a moment where things are fundamentally different. And I think part of that has to be the fact that we are honestly looking at confronting the issues, even though we don't have either the courage or the capacity to make the systemic changes that we need to, to actually address the problem. I'm not convinced that we're there yet, but it's kind of like any, uh, it's like alcoholism, right? You can't start getting better until you, until you acknowledge that you have a problem. And I think you can't honestly look at America and say, yeah, it's acknowledged it's past when we've got, you know, Robert E. Lee statues all over the South and we've got Andrew Jackson in Lafayette Square, you know, right, right outside of Trump's bedroom. Um, clearly, we have not reconciled in an honest and earnest way who we are and what is in the American DNA, the, the, the white supremacy, the systemic racism, in, in those you know clinical terms, right? They're very emotionally charged terms, but they're accurate. They're just accurate. And and no one like you. I think you said something really interesting. It's almost like an interest group, and 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 I think people don't people don't cede power willingly, right? And they just don't. 
and I think that that is part of what is happening is as whites are losing their perception of their status and their power, they are beginning to react in a way that we traditionally associate with an aggrieved racial minority saying the system stacked against me, even though they're the system, they're losing, they're losing pace and they don't like it and they're lashing out. Um, I think that's a perfect way to, to stop uh, I, 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 the notion of America as not only crazy uncle, but America as crazy alcoholic uncle. Um, so, hey, this is going to be fun. Uh, it was a good place to end, good place to begin. I think uh, you're, you're, um, you're inadvertently an optimist. Uh, I'm more pessimistic than ever. And uh, I, I think in the end, we balance each other out. And this is about an earnest conversation about the country. Uh, where it's been, where we are, where we're going. Uh, this is the first episode. We hope uh, people tune in again. Talk to you soon.